With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is ContactTalkRadio.com. Consciousness in action. And you are taking action into your consciousness by tuning into Contact Talk Radio. TuneIn.com, Hing.fm, and Upsnap Mobile. Contact Talk Radio. Welcome to Exploring Racism, creating whiteness from the roots of anti-blackness. Dante King explores the evolution of anti-black racism in the United States and provides opportunities to examine white supremacy through the lens of whiteness as a culture, white privilege, and anti-blackness. The task is challenging and rewarding, and you are invited to gain knowledge as well as share your deepest and sincerest thoughts and feelings. This is a space for you to be authentic, and get answers to questions from others who are engaged in dismantling white supremacy and anti-blackness. Get ready to go on a mind-blowing and heartfelt journey. Good morning, good morning, everyone. Uh, Welcome back to another episode of Exploring Racism. The last few weeks have been um, a combination of reviewing some earlier episodes that I've gone through because I've been traveling, but I'm back. Um, and we did go live, I believe, week before last. I think that was episode 11. So we're going to continue on our journey. For those of you that haven't had an opportunity to tune in, um, you can feel free to either go to um, my Facebook page, I believe. Yeah, because many all of the episodes are posted on there um, under my name at Dante King. Or you can, um, I do have a podcast. Um, there's Apple Podcasts. There's it, there's also it's also on another page um, that I have that we can post um, up so that you'll be able to see it. Um, I'll try to locate it while I'm sharing uh, an excerpt from this book. Um, but anyway, I am going to begin today's um, portion or episode with an excerpt of a book. Um, called They Were Her Property, and it's written by Stephanie Rogers-Jones, and um, it talks about the evolution of um, enslavement in the antebellum South, um, specifically focusing on the mid-18th century, um, towards the end of it. And and I'm going to use this excerpt to really look at the roles that um, white women played as um, slave owners um, to get to give more context or to gain more context or or establish more context uh, pertaining to 
um, the socialization of culture evolved out of it. So that's it. I'll go right to it. And then I also have some slides that I'll share along with it. So please bear with me because I am feeling a little under the weather too. Right, here we go. Mistresses of the market. In 1859, after touring the antebellum South, journalist and New York Tribune editor James Redpath attempted to explain for his readers why white Southern women opposed emancipation. He believed that their sentiments were tied to a lifetime of indoctrination, reared as they were under the shadow of the peculiar institution. Slavery was incessantly praised and defended virtually everywhere they went. By everyone they knew, most of the publications they read. Their consciences, thus early perverted, were never afterwards appealed to, with the result that they saw no reason to change their views. Redpath assumed that white Southern women not know Negro slavery as it is, because their society shielded them from the institution's horrific realities. Insulated by Southern patriarchs, white women seldom saw slavery's most obnoxious features. They never attend auctions, never witness examination, seldom, if ever, see the Negroes lashed. More profoundly, they did not know that the interstate trade in slaves was a gigantic commerce. Southern men revealed the women of the South knew slavery as it is, he was convinced they would join in the protests against it. Redpath's assumptions represented a commonly held patriarchal view, yet narrative sources, legal and financial documents, and military and government correspondence make it clear that white Southern women knew the most obnoxious features of slavery all too well. Slave-owning women not only witnessed the most brutal features of slavery, they took part in them, profited from them, and defended them. Martha Gibbs was one of those women. Lit Young, one of Gibbs' former slaves, was interviewed as part of the Federal Writers Project, FWP, of the Works Progress Administration, WBA, established by the Roosevelt administration in 1935. According to Young, Gibbs was a big, rich Irish woman who weren't scared of no man. She owned and operated a large steam sawmill by you in Vicksburg, where it emptied into the Mississippi River. She also owned a significant number of slaves. So, two sets of whitewashed to house them all. She also built a nice church with glass and a brass cupola. But she worked them hard too. In the people she to them. But she also oversaw her overseer. Almost every morning, she buckled on two guns and come out to the place to personally ensure that things were running smoothly. And she outcussed a man when things didn't go right. Twice married and once widowed, Gibbs would not permit either of her husbands to interfere with her financial affairs, including the management of her slaves. Even though her second husband was a reputable physician in Vicksburg, he had little influence over her or the slave-related activities on their plantation. Lit Young gives husband addressing her after witnessing the brutal whippings her overseer inflicted upon her slaves. He softly interjected, Darling, you ought not to whip them poor black folks so hard. They is going to be free just like us sometimes. Unfazed, 
She snapped. Shut up. Sometime I believe you were the Yankee anyway. Right. During the Civil War, he served the Union forces by treating injured soldiers. After remain unclear, local Union officers arrested Martha Gibbs and locked her up in the Black Folks Church, where they kept her under constant guard for three days, fed her hardtack and water, and then released her. After the soldiers set her free, Gibbs freed her slaves, but only temporarily. One day, when her husband had gone to buy corn for his livestock, she gathered up some of her slaves, ten six-mule wagons and one ox-cook wagon, and set off with them. They walked about 215 miles from Vicksburg, Mississippi, to about three miles from Marshall, Texas. She hired Irishman guards with rifles to make sure that none of her freed slaves ran away during the journey. And when they stopped to rest, the guards tied them into trees. Then, on June 19, 1866, one year after these legally free but still enslaved people made her first crop in Texas, Martha Gibbs finally let them go. Married slave-owning women like Martha Gibbs have received scant attention in historical scholarship. Historians have acknowledged that some Southern women owned slaves, but they usually focus on the wealthiest single or widowed women. When they do encounter married slave-owning women in 19th century records, they generally assume that the women's legal status as wives prevented them from owning slaves in their own right. Historians rarely differentiate between married women who owned enslaved people in their own right and married women who merely lived in households in which they engaged with, managed, and benefited from the labor of the enslaved people that others owned. Historians rarely consider why slave ownership might have mattered to the women in question, to the enslaved people they owned, to slaveholding communities, to the institution of slavery, or more broadly, to the region. Historians have neglected these women because their behaviors toward and relationships with their slaves conform to prevailing ideas about white women and slave mastery. While it has long been recognized that Southern slave owners were in the minority and that they were by no means a homogenous group, so much of what scholars know about women in the slaveholding South draws upon the diaries or letters of the most elite, those living in households that owned more than 10 enslaved people. Historians have chronicled these lives producing micro-histories about an extremely small subset of an already small group of white Southerners. Such studies should not be used to make generalizations about the majority of women in slaveholding communities at large. Records indicate that the majority of slave owners owned 10 enslaved people or less. Scholars who examine the authority that women held over their slaves frequently focus on the women's obligatory rather than voluntary or self-initiated management and discipline of enslaved people. They argue that women could not be true masters of slaves, rather they were fictive masters. Even when they possessed the skills and the gall to manage their slaves, these historians argue, they typically did not relish their power. They did not view their activities as slave mastery, and neither did Southern laws and courts. This was especially true when it came to violent forms of discipline, White women might punish enslaved people, they might even be brutal and sadistic, but they fell short of wielding a master's power. In some, these scholars argue that slave-owning women's acts of violence differed from those of slave-owning men. By extension, many of these scholars flatly reject the idea 
that white married women could adept manage enslaved people without the assistance of men, be they white or black, or that aside from a few exceptional women, they could possess the acumen to do so while also effectively running plantations. Married women, they argue, begrudgingly assumed roles as deputy husbands and fictive widows when their husbands were away. When their men were present, these women happily and enthusiastically relinquished such responsibilities and exhorted their men to handle one historian has called a man's business. And in the view of more than a few historians of American slavery and the domestic slave trade, this was especially the case when it came to the business of buying, selling, and even hiring enslaved people. These scholars claim that a nasty and unseemly business of transacting for human beings was considered ill-suited to white ladies. In They Were Her Property, I build upon these earlier studies, but I also depart from them in significant ways. I focus specifically on women who owned enslaved people in their own right, and in particular on the experiences of married slave-owning women. In addition, I understand these women's fundamental relationship to slavery as relation of property, a relation that was, above all, economic at its foundation. I am not suggesting that this was these women's only relationship to the institution, or that the economic mention of their relations overrode other aspects of their connections to slavery. Rather, I argue that pecuniary ties formed one of slave-owning women's primary relations to African-American bondage. The story of these women's economic investments in slavery, I should argue, tells us much about their economic roles in the institution and the process of nation-making that historians did not know or want to know about before. The economic historian Sven Beckert has argued that slavery was a key part of American capitalism and that slave plantations, not railroads, were in fact America's first big business. If we examine women's economic investments in slavery, rather than simply their ideological and sentimental connections to the system, we can uncover hitherto hidden relationships among gender, slavery, and capitalism. The products of these women's economic investment, the people they own, including the wages enslaved people earned when hired out to others, the cash crops they cultivated, picked, and packed for shipment, and babies they nursed, were fundamental to the nation's economic growth and to American capitalism. All right. So, um, in this book, she explores, <clears throat> again, the role of, of white females as slave owners. It's really compelling. Um, she speaks about, and I have a, on the screen here an example of a, um, what do you call it, an ad for uh, as an enslaved person who's run away. And the owner, as you can see at the bottom of the ad, is Elizabeth Humphy Humphyville, um, who is willing to pay $50 for the recovery uh, of this enslaved woman. And she thinks that her husband has taken her. Um, but she speaks about the roles that um, they played. And particularly, one of the examples that she gives, which I <clears throat> found to be very um, interesting. And I had heard this and, and knew of it, but just to, to hear some examples of it were, was, um, was very fascinating, but about how <clears throat> Black women would be set up um, in situations where they would be 
forced to get pregnant. Um, and so they would set up these um, relationships or ventures, if you will, that would um, position Black women in um, situations where they would be raped, really, um, so that they could be pregnant um, either at a, a bit earlier or at the same time <clears throat> as white women were getting pregnant um, and or they would be shuffled to different plantations so that they could um, help to um, nurse, breastfeed um, white children. And so they were used as wet nurses. Um, so yeah, that, that was really interesting. But in, in the book, she gives a ton of examples of how at the um, really beginning in the mid 18th century towards the end, especially when we declare independence, um, there's the ending of what's known as primogeniture where white boys, white males inherit um, all of the um, assets of their um, fathers. Um, and it's no longer just only passed down to white males, but um, white females also get to take advantage. <clears throat> At the end of English rule, they also begin taking advantage of being inheritors of land, um, of enslaved um, people. And so the enslaved people will be given to them as dowries many times, most times, while they were children. And so I have these photos here because um, in many of the depictions, um, you know, it, it could be presumed in a sense that these women may have um, belonged to the children that they're holding. Um, not only that, you know, the one of the things that's striking to me when I look at these pictures are the expressions on these Black women's faces. Like, they would rather not be there. Um, and I'm not sure if you all can see that or have a reaction to it, but that's um, definitely what stands out to me when I look at this. If you have any reactions to what I'm sharing, feel free to... Um, Call in. The number is 844-390-8255. Again, that's 844-390-8255. Um, so this was the book. Um, they were her property. Um, so again, it documents um, a white woman beginning in the, the late 18th century, early 19th century. Hired, purchased, disciplined, managed, um, and sold enslaved people, including separating children from their parents. Um, exercised all the rights that slave-owning men possess, acquired their slaves as gifts uh, from bequests, procured them from slave traders at auctions, um, including so-called ladies' auctions, brought slaves with them into marriages, and when necessary, took extra steps to secure separate ownership and management of enslaved people, processes that were not required uh, of men, um, created freedom for themselves by actively emerging and investing in the economy of slavery and keeping African Americans in captivity. So, again, on our journey of talking about and exploring structural racism, we're talking about structural racism in the United States being the normalization and legitimization of an array of dynamics, historical, cultural, institutional, and interpersonal, 
that routinely advantage whites while producing cumulative and chronic adverse outcomes for people of color. It is a system of hierarchy and inequity, primarily characterized by white supremacy, the preferential treatment of um, the preferential treatment, privilege, and power for white people at the expense of Black, Latino, Asian, Pacific Islander, Native Arab, and other racially oppressed people. I continue to share this to give um, true context to what we're doing in this unfoldment of exploring racism. We're not only focusing the building up of white supremacy, but also the creating and structuring of anti-Blackness and looking at the ways in which that not only evolved, but intensified um, decade by decade by decade through um, the through embedding um, anti-Blackness as a way of culture, um, but through policies, through laws, um, regulations that um, ultimately created this underclass that will forever remain um, in this country. And that's just not by a matter of individual like or dislike. It's established in the culture. And so if you haven't been tuning in or attuned to um, the prior episodes that I've done, please go and locate them because I've shared um, a body of work that really lays out in sculptures and, and really is a, sculpt a sculpture um, or model of how that began to play out, um, particularly through English colonialism. And so with that said, um, I'll move on. Um, so it's again, the end of primogeniture, which is the right by law or custom of the firstborn legitimate son to inherit his parents' entire or main estate in preference to shared inheritance among all or some children, um, any illegitimate child or any collateral relative, right? So we've got um, additional wars that are happening, um, attacks on various um, native indigenous um, tribes. Go through the American War of Independence. Um, there are some great documentaries on this that I can share. Also, if any are interested, feel free to inbox me and I can share links to some of these um, documentaries that I have. Um, but particularly, I point to this because um, at this time, there is John Murray, who's the fourth Earl of Dunmore, Lord Dunmore, and he offers freedom to enslaved Africans um, and enslaved people in exchange for fighting in the American War of Independence. And so what you have um, between 1775 and 1783 are African Americans um, who are, um, for those that can, um, fighting, that began fighting um, on the side of the British. And approximately 100,000 African Americans escaped um, from slavery from the South during um, the American War of Independence. Some actually escaped with British um, and traveled over to Europe. Um, there's also um, Tecumseh, who was a Native American Shawnee warrior and chief. Um, he became the primary leader of a large multi-tribal 
Confederacy in the early 19th century. This is very important because it shows how certain Native American um, indigenous tribes attempted to band together to revolt against the um, intense colonization that was happening at the time. So born in the Ohio country and growing up during the American Revolutionary War and the Northwest Indian War, Tecumseh was exposed to warfare and envisioned establishment of an independent Native American nation east of the Mississippi River um, under British protection. So he worked to recruit additional members to his tribal confederacy from the southern United States. So it's like they were trying to create their own country um, and could have been successful if they had had the type of um, agreement if you will, or support that they were do this. They didn't. All right, so this is um, another um, ad for a runaway um, enslaved person. And I include these to signify and give credence to the point that there were so many um, African and African-American people who knew the severity of, you know, this predicament of being an enslaved person and the type of torture and terror and pain that they were under, that there were um, a significant amount of people who just continued to run away and escape, but not only that, fight back so that they could um, you know, try and obtain or attain their freedom <clears throat> forever. Um, and so this is another, it says five guineas reward away from the subscriber on John Islands um, about six weeks ago. A Negro fellow named Sambo and the wench Fatima. Sambo is about five foot nine inches high, a very sturdy continent. Um, speaks bad English and is of the Guinea country, but has been many years in this state. Fatima is about the same height, country born, a likely wench, but very artful. It is suspected she is harbored on James Island. Any person who will deliver the above Negroes to the warden of the workhouse in Charleston shall receive five guineas for both. Um, or two and a half for each. So these, the desire to recapture or, uh, um, yeah, to recover these two people was significant because they were willing to give five other enslaved people to um, capture these two. The other thing that I wanna point out is that, um, you know, we were forced to speak English um, and for centuries, I mean, for decades, like it's just, there were those of us who um, were black African-American who learned English or how to speak it from people who had been forced to speak it and never really mastered the tongue. And this goes on for, for decades. Um, and I say that because it, you know, people tend to think, well, black people just sounded so uneducated. Well, this was not our language. <laughs> Um, and um, 
you know, it was forced to, we were forced to learn it and forced to um, attempt to master it. Um, so anyway, move on from that. Um, so we've got the Declaration of Independence, um, July 4th, 1776, you know, this authored. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. By some of the forefathers that we know, um, I'll go to that in just a moment. Um, at the same time, we've got the auctioning off of enslaved African people. Um, continuing, cotton is king crop at this time. Um, we're moving into the um, era where the cotton gin is, it emerges as this machine that can clean cotton um, as fast as it can be produced. And we'll get to that in just a second. Um, we've got Constitution, uh, the development of the Constitution, Article 1, Section 2, Clause 3. I'll speak to that, but um, um, really an idea behind um, that goes hand in hand, I would say, with Griffith's Compromise which um, many of us know and are familiar with, where um, Northern and Southern states could not agree on how slaves would be counted as part of the overall population. And so it was decided that for every five slaves, um, people, so for every five enslaved people, um, three of those people um, could be counted for taxation and representation purposes um, in the um, House of Representatives, okay? So whereas um, people have a misconception about this as though we begin to be recognized as, as three-fifths of, of a person or three-fifths human, and that's not the case. We, but we can tell from the earlier laws that were established and just the, um, context of how African-American and African people were um, regarded or spoken of, that they were already seen as people. Like it was, we were, there's this misconception that, oh, well, they didn't see them as people. They saw them as property. That's, both are true. We were characterized as property, later as real estate, but we were acknowledged and seen as people. Um, the, the rape that was forced upon Black women, they would not have had that would not have happened if they thought these people were not people. Um, so anyway, um, so we're able to be counted at this point for the purposes, again, of representation and taxation um, as part of the population. And so here are some numbers, fascinating numbers that were um, collected from the U.S. Census. And I got these from the National African American Museum um, of history and culture. So what we can see in 1787, um, 
is that the United States population, I want to say this is the first census that was ever collected, but the United States population is roughly 3,000, I'm sorry, 3 million, 929, 326 people. Um, the African-American, African or African-American population um, around that time is 757,208. Of that, 757,208, 697,681 are enslaved. So you've got roughly 60,000 um, African or African-American people, Black people, who are free, um, if you will. That's significant because what this shows is that there has always been this um, dynamic of difference of class in our culture. And so while um, circumstances for most African-Americans, and again, I'll say most, has been um, one of tremendous brutality and angst and um, torture, that, that may not, or what we can derive from this is that that was not true for all. And even within these numbers, there were probably some African-American people um, who were regarded as maybe prominent in the communities that they um, lived, where they lived, and or frequented. Um, and I, I make this comparison because even in today's society, we see disparities that exist. And it's not to say that these disparities um, affect all African-American people the same, because they do not. But for the majority of the culture that we, um, and the majority of the population of African and African-American people that exist for today, um, the experience or experiences are not ideal. And that's what we see in, in our outcomes, whether we're looking at employment, um, education, incarceration, um, healthcare, housing, um, economics, you know, the, the gaps and the disparities are what they are um, because they've been what they've been. And, the types of um, disparities that we see have been promulgated and, and perpetuated, they've emerged and continued um, based on economic policies, or not economic, based on um, laws and policies that have um, continued to build upon the framework of white supremacy, of white supremacy um, using the government as a tool to facilitate that agenda. Um, and so we'll see that, we see, we've seen that previously and we'll see that in subsequent, um, in subsequent episodes that, um, are, that I go forward with. Um, so at this time, there are 11 states with slavery and then there are four states and territories, if you will, without slavery, without slavery yet. All states restrict rights of African Americans. In 1790, we've got Eli Whitney, he invents uh, the cotton gin. 
uh, for those of you that are familiar with it. It increased production expectations exponentially um, of enslaved Black and Native Indigenous people. It also accelerated intense and severe rapes and beatings as a result of both cotton picking, underperformance, and increased reproduction of enslaved women. Because we need to get our numbers up. All right, I'm now gonna go to similarly to what I did with um, in one of the last episodes where we talked about Carl von Linnaeus. Um, I am going to speak a little bit about Johann Friedrich Blumenbach, who was also, he was a German physician, uh, naturalist, physiologist, anthropologist. He was one of the first to explore the study of the human being as an aspect of natural history, okay? So he's an anthropologist, another scientist. I'm going to play a short clip by Joy DeGroo um, where she speaks of um, how he developed the term um, Caucasian. My system is booting up, if you will. <laughs> Again, he's removing the cognitive one. Don't they deserve to be treated the way we treat them? Have we not just justified what we've done? After all, I just told you this is who they are. We're not wrong. We're just trying to keep the uh, domestic tranquility. I'm having a clicker thing. Johann Friedrich Blumenbach. Just look at him. He's not right. His part as well. He says, now this man, Johann, he was a, how many of you familiar with the term Caucasian? Oh, yes. All right, bear with me. And you know your hand. He would designate five races or varieties of man in the session in the second edition of his work on the natural variety of mankind. His division into Caucasian, Mongolian, American, Ethiopian, and Malayan races, with the added became subsequent races entry. Skin coming by considered our hair characteristics fundamental. 
slow what he most beautiful men the cases the biblical source of the original race of men no science yet now I'm going to quote him. These are his words. For in the first place, the stock displays, as we have seen, the most beautiful form of the skull, from which is a mean and primeval type, the others diverge by most easy gradations on both sides of two ultimate extremes. That is, on the one side, the Mongolian, on the other, the Ethiopian. Besides, it is white in color. Anybody here ever met a skull that wasn't? Besides, it is white in color, which we may fairly assume to have been the primitive color of mankind. zippity doo no science, nothing to found this whole thing. He figured white skull, humanity began white. It's scary, but it's in a book, and it's touted as science, and we swallowed it without question. We're raising the concept of society. All right. Did that go over okay? Let's see. No, okay. That's this is that's not good. <laughs> did I play it over? It did. Okay. Um, sorry about that, everybody. Um, I am going to try and did it play toward the end? Or no, it did. Okay, I'll try to play this over. Um, it's only a few minutes. I'll try to play it over. Here we go. Having a clicker thing. Johann Friedrich Blumenbach. Just look at him. He's not right. We can tell already. But he had to contribute his part as well. He says, now this man, Johann Friedrich Blumenbach, he was an individual. How many are familiar with the term Caucasian? Oh, yes. Then you know Johann. He would designate five races or varieties of man in the session in the second edition of his work on the natural variety of mankind. His division into Caucasian, Mongolian, American, Ethiopian, and Malayan races, with the added Carl von Linnaeus descriptive peculiarity, became the subsequent basis of most 19th century anthropomedical studies. While Carl von Linnaeus founded his system principally upon skin color, Blumenbach considered the combination of color, hair, skull, and facial characteristics as fundamental means for classifying the five varieties of man. Central to his study was the Caucasian, a term which he originated. He took the name Caucasian, listen for the science, from Mount Caucasus because its southern slope had cradled what he felt to be the most beautiful race of men, the Georgian. The Caucasus near Mount Ararat, upon which the biblical ark came to rest after the flood, seemed the appropriate source for the original race of man. No science yet. 
Now I'm going to quote him. These are his words. For in the first place, the stock displays, as we have seen, the most beautiful form of the skull, from which is a mean and primeval type, the others diverge by most easy gradations on both sides of two ultimate extremes. That is, on the one side, the Mongolian, on the other, the Ethiopian. Besides, it is white in color. Anybody here ever met a skull that wasn't? Besides, it is white in color, which we may fairly assume to have been the primitive color of mankind. Zippity do not, no science, nothing to found this whole thing. He figured white skull, humanity began white. It's scary, but it's in a book and it's touted as science. And we swallowed it without question. All right. Uh, I am going to go back to the slides. So she, um, again, speaks of these doctors um, as anthropologists who were responsible for creating all of this information that we've learned, um, that doctors use to this day that we abide by in terms of classifying not only um, who people are by race and what are um, inherent characteristics and traits um, were or are, but um, how these things were legitimized through systems of academia, of, um, you know, noting it as scientific, and we've been programmed and socialized to internalize this information. A lot of what is displayed here is responsible for a lot of the racial um, slash ethnic stereotypes um, and stigmas that we hear and are um, familiar with. So you've got, um, just to reinforce the point and drive it home, you've got people um, who particularly are white, male, um, being certified, if you will, to really do their own research and provide their own perspective about who um, they think people are by race. And so um, this is very important um, because again, when we think of who's framing the narrative, who's setting it up, who, who gets to control that, um, and also where they learned from, who were their teachers and um, the racial bias, the um, ignorance, um, because the lack of information or knowledge at hand, it's, be, it's being um, propagated and um, created, developed from one point of view, um, if you will, all right? So that's around the end of the 18th century. President James Madison, known as the father of the Constitution, um, Article 1, Section 2, Clause 3, just to give a little bit of um, insight into his thought process. And this is still within the Constitution to this day. Uh, but it says, Negroes are inhabitants, but debased by servitude below the equal level of free inhabitants, which regards the slave as divested of two-fifths uh, of, of the man. Um, Article 1, Section 9 specifically prohibits Congress from legislating in certain areas. 
Um, in the first clause, the Constitution bars Congress from banning the importation of slaves before 1808. They engineered a clause in this Constitution that said, you cannot ban um, us out of the international slave trade before 1808. And we do see that that happens later on, um, but it increases the acceleration of um, reproduction for the domestic slave trade. Not only that, even when they, when Congress bars us, um, we still continue to participate in the international slave trade. And, and there are boats that are um, pouring in to different um, ports throughout the country past that time, all the way up to 1860. So this really does nothing uh, because again, the practice is already there. It's already a part of our culture, so it continues in practice. So you've got the first United States Supreme Court, February 1st, um, 1790, um, which included John Jay, uh, John Blair, John Rutledge, Robert Harrison, James Wilson, and William Cushing. Um, and then now we get to the first Congress. And so I'm going to play um, another excerpt by um, Jacqueline Batalora going back to um, Birth of a, a White Nation, which is one of the first um, texts that I shared from. And this is a video where she's talking about um, her, um, what the book is about. And, but particularly in this, at this juncture, she's talking about um, the, the creation of the American government and the American um, economy and the de declaring of independence um, and the laws that, um, one of the laws that begin to emerge um, through this conference here that went on for roughly two years um, are, um, is around naturalization and who can and who cannot um, immigrate into this country. We're going to move from the 17th century into the 18th century. The American Revolution has taken place, and the Congress of the United, first Congress of the United States of America will meet for the first time. And when they meet, they will establish laws regarding citizenship in this new country. This is the building actually in New York where the first Congress met. Here are the All right, it's buffering. <laughs> men who represented the first Congress. These laws regarding citizenship include an area of law called naturalization law. Naturalization law provides the process by which one who is not born in a country can become a citizen. The first Congress of the United States determined 1790 that in order to become a naturalized citizen of this new republic called the United States of America, one had to be white. This was valid law in the United States until 1952. You had to be white to be a U.S. citizen. 1952. Now, as is often the case, Laws impact those who are gendered female differently than those who are gendered male. No less true with the naturalization law. For example, white women who were citizens, if they dared to marry a man, 
who was ineligible for citizenship via the naturalization law, in other words, he wasn't white, she loses her citizenship. These laws work to make white women most available to white men, and frankly, all women available to white men. The requirement of whiteness in naturalization law had a significant impact on various groups of people who've come to the United States of America. In fact, naturalization law was a significant piece of evidence used in the Plessy versus Ferguson case in 1896 to determine that U.S. citizenship status and therefore the protections of the constitutions were never intended to be applied to persons of African descent. Naturalization law assured that the masses of Chinese laborers and then Japanese laborers and then various other groups of laborers who came to this country would remain cheap, dependent labor. Why? Because even though they were significant in number, especially relative to their employer and landholders and railroad companies, if you're not white, you're not a U.S. citizen. If you're not a U.S. citizen, you don't vote. If you can't vote, you can't voice your political needs and desires, thereby reducing these groups of people to dependent cheap labor. In addition, naturalization law was used to block persons of Chinese and Japanese and Filipino, and we could go on and on, various groups um, not only did it result in them getting paid less for doing the same job, but all kinds of taxes got imposed upon them. So there was a foreign wage tax. Various laws were passed that blocked them from being able to work in the public sector, blocked them from being able to hold a managerial position. And then, of course, alien land laws were passed. These for naturalization result of these laws for white people, right? Because we're real good about seeing the harm that these laws cause um, for certain groups. But let's get the flip side of that coin. When I make land, when I make a whole group of people ineligible to purchase land, it makes more land available and cheaper for me, for white people. When you're the lowest paid worker and prohibited from moving up as a matter of law, then those positions that get paid more, that are more desirable, are more available to white people. So we see just from this one law, and I could spend another hour with you at least going through these combinations of law, naturalization law, anti-miscegenation law, and immigration policy, all that combined in these ways to continue to advantage, to give economic value, symbolic value to white people, to give us the unearned advantages that we continue to receive today. All right. So I'm going to stop here. Um, and that will take us into the next, uh, uh, the next episode when we come back together. Um, thank you for joining uh, this episode and I look forward to being with you again next week. All right, take care.